1. Hosea and chapter 1. We have begun, we started two weeks ago, to look at a series of sermons that I entitled Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And basically, that was a play on words because often our attitude towards minor prophets is that they are minor, they are small, they are, you know, under A or B. And so I thought that if we could entitle it as major lessons, perhaps that might awaken a, a greater sense of uh, uh, interest in what we are looking at. And what we did that time was to use Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, to answer the question, who were the minor prophets? And basically, as I read these two verses, I will tell you what we looked at last time. First of all, we said that they received the word of God. The creator of the entire universe, the governor of history, that infinite being spoke to his people through them. Hence, we read the words, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beiri, and then we went on. The second part was to say that they lived during a vital period in the life of Israel. And we went on to see that it was essentially, first of all, the first few were in what we call the northern kingdom or Israel proper, and then the last few were in the, uh, the nation of Judah, and then we ended up with uh, the very, very last few being at a time when uh, the exiles came back to the promised land. And here is a typical example. We've heard that this was Uzziah, the son of Beiri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Assyria. That's showing that they were the divided kingdom and then one kingdom was about to go under God's condemnation and destruction. And then the third lesson that we learned was the fact that each of them received a different message that was relevant to the people to whom that prophet was speaking. And this is what we see in verse 2, which is where we will begin from this evening. And we read here, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Wardom and have children of Wardom, for the land commits great Wardom 
by forsaking the Lord. So, this was a message for Hosea. It was not given to any other of God's prophets. And other prophets also received their own messages different from that of Hosea. Well, today we start our study of the first minor prophet, which is Hosea. And we want to see what it is that is true concerning him. Now, Hosea lived in the 8th century BC, that is before Christ, and his life was round about 760 to 720 BC. And he primarily ministered under those kings that we saw there, but particularly under one king of Israel, and it was Jeroboam. There, this is the people group, which is the northern kingdom, that he will primarily be addressing. And even as we look at chapter 1, you will soon get to appreciate that. I mentioned two weeks ago when we were looking at this, that at the time that these prophets were speaking, Israel, which is both kingdoms when I speak like that, were in a very bad shape spiritually, terribly backslidden. First of all, with respect to their vertical relationship, they were a people that were steeped in idolatry. They had their own shrines, their own Asherah poles, their own bowels that they were uh, worshipping. And this is part of the major message that we have in this book. We'll come to that in a moment. But also in terms of their interpersonal relationships, they, at, a, at a horizontal level, they, they were defrauding and oppressing the poor, they were uh, stealing from one another in terms of uh, robbing, uh, especially the agrarian products, their animals, and so on. There were individuals that were involved in, in sexual uh, immorality, especially with their neighbors' wives, and so forth. So literally, whatever it is that could go wrong was going wrong. And already a number of other prophets before them had spoken. The people of Israel were just hardened. And now we have individuals like Hosea in that string of prophets coming again to speak that this is what God says. For Hosea specifically, the primary theme of his book is an illustration, on one hand, of uh, Israel's sin of unfaithfulness. I will open that up in a moment. And then, on the other, it was to speak about God's punishment and God's restoration of the people of God once they have undergone chastisement. So this is really the message that Isaiah, Hosea is speaking throughout his book. The main issue to realize is the background. 
and it is the fact that God's relationship with his people is illustrated by the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's a covenant relationship. In fact, theologians often argue as to whether referring to the church of Jesus Christ, because that's really the same relationship that we also have with our Savior. They often argue as to whether it's marriage that is simply a picture of the church and its relationship, or is the church and its relationship that is then pictured in the marriage context. And one of the reasons why they argue that way is not so much the beginning, because with respect to human beginning, it was our marriages that we are involved in, but it is in terms of that which is eternal, that which is permanent. And as you know, when we get to heaven, there's no marrying. There's going to be one marriage feast, and it will be between the Lord and his church. The point, nonetheless, is that these two are like two sides of a coin. And for those of us who are Christians, we need, as we are going through Hosea, that's where we will be applying the lessons to ourselves. Am I faithful to God? Is, is he the only one in my life? Is everything I deal with, everything in my life, is it with him in mind? Or have I diversified my heart like a, a person who is a prostitute or an adulterer so that God, yes, I also spend some time with you, but excuse me, I now have my other lovers. That's the issue that is in this particular uh, book. And perhaps the most outstanding thought about the book of Hosea, which if you've been a Christian long enough, you obviously know, was that he was asked to marry a promiscuous wife. And this is really what we'll be dealing with here in chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, where we will not go today, he is asked to reconcile with her after he had already chased her away. And again, it's something that is shocking. Hence, my first point in my sermon. And it is this. The most shocking instruction in all of Scripture was given to Hosea. The most shocking. And it is marry a prostitute. Let's quickly see this in verse 2 where we have just uh, ended. When the, word, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Wardom and have children of Wardom, for the land commits great Wardom by forsaking the Lord. Now, this is shocking, to say the least. First of all, let's put ourselves in Hosea's shoes. This is 
the first time God is speaking to him. We are told that when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. And the first thing that God says to him is go marry a prostitute. It is so shocking that many commentators try to explain away what stares them in the face. So, for instance, they suggest that perhaps this woman who's named uh, in verse 3, so let me just quickly read verse 3 as well. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. There are approximately eight possible answers that are given by commentators, and almost all of them are meant to run away from this shocking reality. I won't give you all eight of them, but those of you who often are very interested in uh, following things like this up, feel free to contact me afterwards. But one major one is that perhaps Goma was not yet adulterous at the point at which God is speaking to, uh, to, to Hosea. So go marry this woman. And then after marrying her, bang, she becomes um, unfaithful, which is often what happens in marriages. You know, hardly anyone will go deliberately to go and marry a woman who is already well known that she is promiscuous. So to, to sort of blunt the sharpness of this, it is thought, okay, maybe, perhaps, at this point, she was not uh, adulterous. But of course, read the text again. It says, God take to yourself a wife of Wardom, and Wardom has to do with um, prostitution. So go marry an adulterous woman. But then uh, it is also sometimes assumed that uh, perhaps the adultery here is spiritual adultery. In other words, it is idolatry, which the whole of Israel, well, maybe not the whole, but most of the Israelites were guilty of. And the argument there is often because the same word is used in the second part of this instruction. So God takes yourself a wife of wardom and have children of wardom, for the land commits great wardom by forsaking the Lord. So the thought there is A, it's exactly the same thing that is being spoken about in this particular text. The problem with that theory is the fact, as we go through this later, it becomes fairly clear that, in fact, Hosea is being asked by God to play out in physical reality what, in fact, is an illustration of spiritual reality, and it will become fairly evident there. So, yes, the same phrase is being used. In the first case, it is being used in physical reality, and then in the second, it is being used in parabolic sense. But here's a third and uh, last way in which uh, individuals would seek to escape this. 
And it is in terms of saying, well, this is a parable. Um, so God did not really say this to Hosea in real life. It is as though Hosea is saying something like, supposing this is the situation I found myself in, how would I feel? And then the way I would feel must be the way God is feeling about what you are going through. Again, the problem with that is that in, in parables, names of individuals are not given. And in this particular case, we are told, so he went and took Goma. And Goma is identifiable, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. So, however much you might want to run away from this, and as I said, there are at least another um, four explanations for this. Ultimately, God wants this sad physical reality in the life of Hosea to, to drive home that sharp pain that is there with respect to the immoral spiritual reality that is taking place with respect to Israel. That as they are giving their hearts to idols, that's exactly the way it is. It's a covenant relationship that is being broken. A real covenant relationship that is being broken. So, because Hosea realized what God wanted to illustrate, and it is this, the land has committed great wardom, great prostitution. By forsaking the Lord, he went ahead and obeyed God and married a woman who was adulterous and even had a child with her. But it wasn't just one child. He ended up with three children. And each of those three children, from the name that they are given, we are told a lot there. So let's quickly read verse 3 to verse 9. The Lord said to him, call his name, this is the firstborn son, Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Notice, it's not Judah there, it is Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Number two, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her no mercy. In fact, the actual Hebrew rendering there is lo ruhama, lo ruhama, which simply means no mercy. 
call her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Notice it is now um, those two tribes, the southern kingdom. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And then the last one. When she had wind no mercy, which is law Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now this must have been tough for, for Hosea. But remember, he is meant to be a physical representation of a spiritual reality. The difficulty was in two ways. First of all, it is that he's married a prostitute and then he's having children. Are these my children or are they not my children? So it is in that context that they are called children of wardom. Again, all you need to do is put yourself in that context in ancient Israel and you are Hosea. And you know very well that every so often your wife slips out. Every so often you do bump into her with another man. And the situation is only getting worse. And then she has a child and she has a child and she has another child. Hence the phrase, children of war dom. Remember, there was no DNA in those days. So you can't say, well, you know, let's just wait six months and then we'll go and have a DNA test. It's just this entire heartbreaking confusion and reality that Hosea had to live in which again is reflecting the situation that God was dealing with with respect to the people of Israel. Because in the midst of idolatry, again, it's the mixture of belief that is taking place there. As your people are giving birth to actual physical children that is in the nation of Israel, who among them are actually my people and who among those children of my people are actually children of idolatry? Because idolatry has become such a mixture among the people of Israel. That level of confusion. The second difficulty for Hosea was the names that he was being asked to give to these children. The names. The first name, Jezreel, was speaking about a defeat and punishment that the people of Israel were going to suffer, and no doubt they were going to suffer it at the hands of the Assyrians. Assyria at this stage was the greatest nation on the planet. 
and therefore it was going to come upon them and God was not going to rescue them from uh, what was going to come. Which is again what we then find in the next name. And this time it's a daughter. And if you know anything about the way in which fathers feel concerning their daughters, this name was the worst name you'd want to give to a daughter. No mercy. No mercy. No mercy. In fact, as you know, some parents have given their children the name mercy. Now, this is no mercy. I've never found no mercy as a name given to a daughter. And all that God was saying through that second one was that when the Assyrians come, I'm not going to listen to the cries of the people. I will close my ears. Even as they are crying and crying and crying, I will not have mercy upon them as they are led away into destruction and also into captivity. The third, which is uh, a son, is the name, not my people, which is actually Lo Ami. Lo Ami. And this is now the final. It is a complete rejection that is taking place there. It amounts to a divorce that is being given. Um, the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. The difficulty there is not so much in the naming. The difficulty is in the fact that that's what you'll be calling them. That's, that's the name that you will be calling them by. And that's hard because it means that you are constantly being reminded of this judgment of God that is going to come where you won't have mercy and you drive them away from the promised land and literally, in this particular case, withdraw from them. Withdraw from them. And as your children are growing up, that's what you're calling them. And it's always there in front of you. What a powerful illustration that God is giving here to what otherwise we, we don't think about. We don't see. Remember, we are seeking to apply this to ourselves as Christians and especially to ourselves as backslidden Christians. Christians who are in compromise. Christians who are living in sin. Now, other believers are not seeing that. Because oftentimes, a lot of what is happening is behind closed doors. It is in the darkness. Other believers don't know. They are happy, clappy with you. They don't know what is going on. But God sees. God, God notices that even, for instance, he, he has said, look, six days will, will be your work. Seventh is mine so that we can spend time together in fellowship. 
that I can speak to you, you can pray to me, you can sing my praises, give thanks for the energy I gave you, and pray for the week that lies ahead. It's our day. We don't know what's happening, but for God, he knows it. He knows who it is who as soon as church is over, bang, to my gods. Bang. And sometimes it's even abandoning church altogether because my gods are calling. We don't know individuals and what they do behind closed doors, but God knows. And listen, he lives with this 24 hours a day. He lives with it. And that's what he's trying to picture here through Hosea. That Hosea, what you are going through, multiply by a million or a billion because I'm God. And this is what I have to live with. Do you understand why I am bringing Assyria to put an end to all this? Just to, to close the doors. Because this is sickening to me. And hence his use of this most shocking illustration. Shocking illustration. Because the whole of our beings feel disgusted disgusted about this. Now imagine an infinitely holy God who has said, you are mine. You are mine. You are to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're everything. And then you box him into one corner and then the rest is without now, the glory of all the, um, the prophets, including Hosea, and we'll see it time and time and time again, is that it never ends with judgment. It always ends with redemption. It ends with uh, restoration. It ends with um, um, revival. And that's what you notice in verse 10 and verse 11 here, that a day of revival is promised. Verse 10 and 11. Yet, yet is meant to be a contrast to what we have just seen here. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, lo, ami, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, so both the southern and northern kingdom, shall be gathered together. They will be one. And they shall appoint for themselves one Head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day 
of Jezreel. What is he saying there? Very quickly, uh, time is not with us. First of all, I want to say that this is like up, down, up, down, up, down that you will see throughout the prophets. By the way, including Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When you go through them, you always notice when God acts in judgment against his people, notice his people, it's never to destroy them utterly. It is always to chastise them so that they come into a healthy relationship with him. And hence this complete swing, because he's just been talking about Hosea's children, and all of them uh, were the only three, uh, but now God is saying that contrasted with that, the children of Israel will be like the sand on the sea. Now, here he is. He's just been saying that I'm going to bring destruction on them and I'm going to bring such destruction that there's going to be no mercy. Then suddenly, bang, he changes. And he says, they are going to be like the sand on the seashore. Where is this coming from? Just quickly turn with me to Genesis and chapter 22. Genesis 22. Uh, the occasion is uh, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice um, uh, Isaac. And then uh, he obeyed. He did not have an idol. Isaac, though born to him in old age, was not an idol. When God said, Isaac must go, Abraham said, yes, Lord. And then just when he was about to sacrifice him, he is saved through a ram that is in the thickets. Verse 20, sorry, verse 17. Verse 17. Um, let me begin with verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. In other words, you did not have him as an idol. I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy, in his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's exactly where he is when he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or multiplied. What is that saying? Simply this. Although Israel has been unfaithful, I will remain faithful. I made a promise to Abraham 
we entered into a covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship, I made certain promises. Well, those promises will still be fulfilled because I will remain faithful. Wow. What a God. What a God. And then also notice that while he was speaking in terms of um, God, Hosea's uh, son, being, you are not my people and I am not your God, now he is saying, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. In other words, it's going to be reversed completely. That's what's going to happen. A time is going to come when in the very place where they were divorced, that's where they will be reconciled. They will come back. I will restore them to myself, to a, a genuine relationship with me. The difference is that there will be no idolatry there. Previously, they were children of dead gods, with small g, dead gods. That's what idols were, dead gods. But now, they'll be children of the living God, with no dead gods among them. Their hearts will be completely given over to me. And then, lastly, Previously, the reason why that the nation of Israel broke into two with Judah and Israel going their separate ways was because they could not agree on who was going to be their leader. So it was really a leadership wrangle that took them into two separate kingdoms. But he's saying here, that's going to change. Because strictly speaking, they were one family. That's what they were. And he's saying, now it's going to change. You will appoint for yourselves one leader. Now, I will let the card out of the back. We'll see it as we continue in the book. That leader is actually Christ. It's, it's reference into the far distant future. When you read the prophets, they normally refer to a David, that they are that they will, they will be given King David back to lead them. And it's really pointing to the greater King David who is going to take charge of all God's people. And we know by now who all God's people are. And it is the Christian church in which all of us come as one. But we'll open that up later as we go into the rest of this book. For now, I just want to pause before I hand over to Pastor Swale to take us to the Lord's Supper. It's, this is a, a poignant way of saying to us that our relationship with God is a monogamous relationship monogamous. 
And it, 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 it's by doing this. I, I've never forgotten how many years ago I shocked my, my they were kids by that time, they are, they are now men and women. And it, I wanted to show them how wasting time is actually wasting money. I remember I, I was thinking hard. How am I going to show them that every second and every minute and every hour matters so that they can become hard workers? How? So one day I called them together and I got some money. I held it in my hands and I said, you know, they say time is money. What does it mean? So they explained what it meant. So I took that note and I tore it right in front of them. And you should have seen the shock. <gasps> they really wanted to rescue the money. And it was torn. And I put it there in front of them. And I said, that's exactly what you do when you're just sitting. And time is going. You are literally tearing money away. Now, I have long forgotten they're the ones who keep reminding me every so often of that shocking lesson. Shocking lesson. God was doing something like this. And friends, the message remains even more meaningful for us because our relationship is clearly bride and bridegroom, that Christ so loved the church that he gave himself. He gave himself to purchase us to himself. Are we guilty of making him just one of those things in our lives? Just one of those things. Are we guilty of that? And that we've continued doing so. Sermon after sermon has come. And we always somehow control this God. We've put him in a cubicle. And then we've got many other gods that we are serving. As we come to the betrothal feast, which is what the Lord's Supper is, let's pause and ask ourselves the question. Is my relationship with God monogamous? Is it? Is it just me and him? Because he's betrothed me to himself. Or have I got cherished idols that I'm hiding, which other Christians may not know because they never read the heart, they never follow me in darkness. But God knows, and he might be thoroughly disgusted even as we speak. Let's search ourselves. Amen.